Hello, good afternoon. I'm Dave Moore, and you're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. My guest this week is a man born in Douglas, but taken away from the island at a very young age, and went on to be raised in North America. He would end up in prison for 34 years before eventually being released, and therefore able to return to the land of his birth. He's written two books about his experiences, 34 Years of Hell and Behind the Granite Walls. Here on Max Radio is the incredible story of Jamie Morgan Kane. My connection to the Isle of Man starts in 1911 when my grandparents, Leo Kane and Ellen, got married there, Ellen Lloyd-Jones. She had been working at Castle Mona as a waitress, and uh, he had been a variety artist who was singing on the Isle. And then they met, fell in love, and they got married at St. Mary's Catholic Church in 1911. But they left the Isle shortly after they got married. And my dad was born actually in Manchester because my granddad was on tour singing. And he was, happened, to be, <laughs> happened to be in Manchester when grandma was nine months pregnant. So my dad was actually born in Manchester. My grandparents then worked for a man by the name of Sir Peter Peacock. You might be familiar with him, Peacock stores and stuff. Mm-hmm. They worked on his estate when World War I broke out. My, uh, my granddad went and joined the RASC went to fight and he was in North Africa and he actually went missing for about a year. But grandma, being the businesswoman that grandma seems to have been, got Sir Peter Peacock to lend her 500 pounds and she bought the Falcon Cliff Hotel. They owned the Falcon Cliff from 1919 until 1939. And granddad came back right after she'd bought it. He showed back up after having been missing and injured in, in Africa during the war. They had that hotel. And then uh, my Aunt Eva, who was a, a singer and an actress and a whistler in 2005, they did a stamp for her there on the aisle. And she did a thing about called Time to Remember, where she talks about her parents. But my, my dad, like I said, was born in 1912. <laughs> my ties to the Isle of Man go back to that. 39, uh-huh. my grandparents, we'll uh, go back a little further. Starting in about 1920, grandma being, like I said, quite a businesswoman, she started getting TT teams to stay at the hotel. In 1939, the, the German Nazi TT team was staying there at the hotel. And I have a photo of my grandparents sitting with the whole TT team and their families and sport. So then what happened is British government, of course, took the hotel during the, for the war effort. And then uh, grandma in 1940 bought one called the House Drake Golf Links Hotel. It's no longer there, but they owned that one from 1940 until about 1957, 59. There's kind of a, a difference. It's like they, in 57, they turned it over to somebody else to run it and they didn't run it right. So they took it back for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But the golf course, the King Edward golf course still gives out the Kane Trophy, the golf trophy called the Kane Trophy. My granddad, Leo Kane, the Manx Horticultural Society still gives out the Leo Kane Trophy. Grandma was very involved in getting um, the second Manx Spitfire paid for. And also she helped get the old sailors home built. They were very much involved with the community stuff, even though they were, quote, comeovers. Then uh, my dad, he was in World War II. He, he was in the RAF. He was a flight sergeant. My mom had been working for BSA, for Birmingham Small Arms, as a munition worker, like her mother had for World War I. Apparently, when Birmingham got all bombed out, to my understanding, there was a small munitions depot on the aisle and she was working there. And that's how she met my dad when he was home on leave. My dad was a gentle sort of man. 
even though he never actually went to see combat, he was there during the Blitz of Birmingham and was involved in pulling people out of the rubble and stuff. Uh-huh. And it affected my dad terribly. And that kind of is how I ended up being sent over to North America was because my dad would have what now would be called post-traumatic stress. And at some point, my dad filed for a divorce from my mom when she was eight months pregnant with me. He, As soon as he filed the court papers, he left the aisle. Well, being that my grandparents were Catholics, my mother had been Church of England. And when she converted to Catholicism to marry my dad, her family in Birmingham completely rejected her. She was dead to them. Uh-huh. So then what ended up happening is grandma, in all of her wisdom, threw my mom out of her job and home at the hotel. I was actually home birthed over by Hillbury in a, a hovel that where there were a couple elderly ladies that my mother knew. I got baptized at St. Anthony's, which is where my grandparents' parish was, and my parents got married in 1946. And, uh, and I have a picture of my parents on their wedding day out in front of the church, you know, in their finery. 1954 was when I was born. And interesting enough, that was the first year the Germans were allowed to come back to TT. And they stayed at my grand with my grandparents at the house straight. My mom, not having a job, not having a place to live, just had a, a baby. Postpartum depression, we believe, kicked in among everything else, being defiled for divorce. So she dropped me off on grandma's doorstep and she left the aisle. And neither of my parents returned to the aisle. Mm-hmm. And grandma made the decision with the help of Father McGuire, who was the priest at the church, that sending me away would probably be the best thing because there was definitely talk about the divorce and all that stuff on that little island because there was only about 50,000 people on the aisle at that time. Mm-hmm. So to help get away of all that, they sent me away first to Canada. I went to a place called St. Joseph's Orphan Asylum in Ottawa. What they're noted for, they were run by a, a group called the Grey Nuns of the Cross. But they were a big part of the involvement in the Duplius orphan scandal, where children were being sold as indentured servants to Canadian farmers. Okay, so just, be, well just, as, just before we get into that, how old were you at this yeah, time? Six months old when I left the aisle. So how, now, how did you leave the aisle, you know, if you were six months old? I, uh, what, I was, what I've been told is we went by ship to Liverpool. This is you and your mum? Uh, no, this me and the woman who I thought would be my mum. It was actually a lady named Martha Boswell, and she was one of the Boswell gypsies that used to stay on the aisle. She was part of that clan, and she worked for my grandmother, and she was only 18 years old, but she had been trained in the silver service. Grandma gave her a letter of reference to the convent saying that she was good with children, and she could cook, and she could wash, and things like that. She had somehow come in possession of my my birth mom's uh, passport when we were in Canada, Apparently, I got real sick because we one, le- one letter we have from the nuns that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement people of the United States did when they were investigating me said that I'd gone to the hospital with a high fever and a cough in December of 54. Mm-hmm. They didn't know. And their records were mislaid, lost, whatever. And they didn't know what happened after that. But I was scheduled to either go into uh, uh, Montreal or go into uh, America. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, these same nuns ran mental hospitals, and so children that they couldn't legally adopt out or couldn't uh, send out to these farmers, they placed a lot of these normal children in these mental facilities. And, of course, if you put a normal person in a mental facility for 30 or 40 years yeah. starting as children, they become what they are around. Mm-hmm. So there was a big – there's a thing called the Duplius Orphan Scandal. Duplius was the prime minister at the time. And so it's it's a big thing uh, you could look up and uh, – 
But anyway, what happened was the girl that was there with me saw what was happening. And it's apparently she decided she didn't want that for my life. And so she, she snatched me and took me into America. And then she started using my mom's passport as an identity. She put her mm -hmm. picture in it and uh, started using my mom's name. And she raised me as her, her own until I was about 13, which point in time she'd become real ill due to bad relationships, having a major drinking problem, which unfortunately arrangements were made through one of the well-to-do families that she had uh, worked for in serving and domestic work that they would take and adopt me. But mm -hmm. in actuality, all they did was use me to replace a child that they had adopted, but went missing in their care. And, you, and what age were you at this point? I was just turning 14, but because I was so small, because quite yeah. honestly, I didn't eat really well when, mm -hmm. I, was, when I was a child. We were, we were kind of hand mouth type thing. So they actually gave me the other kid's identity and backdated my birth two years to make me 12. And also what age, when she snatched you, what age were you then? I was a year. I was just okay. a year old. All right. Okay. So just without going into details, I mean, your memories yeah. of that period, are they good memories? Are they bad memories? Or do you not have many memories? What's funny is that most of what I can remember in my childhood was actually pretty good memories. Uh -huh. uh, but I used to get left a lot with this lady I called Grandma Toby mm -hmm. in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And she was an English woman, funny enough. And she's actually the one... I didn't go to my first school till after I got turned over to this other family. Mm -hmm. Up until then, it was all homeschooled with Grandma Toby. And she taught me geography and math and reading and, and, and all that. We didn't have a TV, but we had a radio. And I actually be, be, I was actually better educated than when I went to school than the kids that had been in school all wow. those years. And we've later, we've now found out that in actuality, she was a woman who was well known to my grandmother. We quite honestly believe that she was engaged to my grandmother's younger brother who we believe died in in world war one because he just disappears mm -hmm. and uh, there was she had a picture of, of this man a young man in uniform mm -hmm. and uh, she never married but she used to come back and forth between england and arizona she owned a uh, like a hotel there you know called benson lodge her last name was benson and it wasn't her name wasn't toby it was ruby mm -hmm. but the thing was that somehow the Hispanic community and, and this old black guy who wrote, worked for her, they just started calling, somehow calling her Toby, you know, and mispronouncing it, and she just left to go. Uh -huh. So she did a lot of raising of me, and because uh, Martha, the woman that I thought was my mom, her real name was Martha Boswell, she would often go off and leave me for sometimes months at a time, and then pop back up and take me with her for a while, and then she'd drop me off. And in the meantime, she'd had three daughters through some different relationships and, and she had a couple of marriages and from what we could tell, she's never, she never divorced, but she did get married a few times. When did you find out all of this? When did you find out that you'd been adopted? What part of your life did you discover the truth about your childhood? Martha would always tell me about the Isle of Man when I was real little. She used to, she used to do this thing when she had something really important to say, she'd always tell me, remember, remember, remember. She'd always say it three times. And, and she told me things like, when you were first born, I took you down to the beach. And she goes, I put a drop of seawater in your mouth. I put a bit of sand in your mouth. And I held you up so you could breathe in Mahana's cloak. She goes, that way, you would always be tied to the aisle. And it would always call you home. And I go, oh, that's cool. And she tell me. And the Isle of Man's this mystical place. You know, the Finnadari and the Modidu, Mahana McLear. And she'd tell me, you know, and the wee little people and and she would tell me all the and, and for a little kid growing up, to know you're from this really you know, strange, magical, mystical place 
it's kind of cool, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't have an identity really. So she told me about that, but she never really spoke about my dad or anything. So there was a long time. I just thought that I was like born out of wedlock or something. That's yeah. why we were, we weren't there other than her telling me I was from the Isle of Man. I didn't have any real tangible proof. Now, interesting enough, when I was like five years old, I got given this gift. And what it was, was a, a little brass motorcycle racer guy. I, I called it my toy. Well, for years and years and years, I had that. And it was like, and I've got a picture of me about five, six years old. And I, everybody's really dressed up to go somewhere. And everybody's looking at the camera, not me. I'm looking at my little toy in my hand because hmm. it went everywhere with me. It ended up being taken from me when I went to this other family. And I never knew what happened to it. And then it got mailed back to me here a little over a year and a half ago. It had somehow made it back to the Isle of Man to my grandmother uh-huh. and had been put away. It got mailed back. Well, what we've come to find out that it wasn't a toy. It was a 1954 motorcycle corkscrew that was made for hotels on the Isle of Man. And of course, my grandparents owned a hotel. And so we believe that probably my granddad cut the corkscrew part off, Hmm. mailed it over to Grandma Toby. It was then given to me when I was five. Again, what are the odds of that? Hmm. And then the fact that I get it back after all these years, it comes back to me. Because I was at the age I was, I had gone by Morgan James Kane up until I went with these people. So mm-hmm. I knew my name, but then they gave me this other name. So you're adopted and this is how it's done, you know? And mm-hmm. of course, I didn't know any better. Well, I was told initially I was supposed to be named James Edward Kane, but my grandmother argued against that because my dad's middle name was Edward. His name was Douglas Edward. There was a point where I almost didn't get baptized. And then apparently some person who was in the, ch- the chapel who wasn't from the aisle, but was visiting said, look, the only thing you people are, uh, agree on is he's born here. He's born of the aisle. Hmm. Said, why don't you call him Morgan, which means sea dweller. So that's why I became Morgan James Kane. We'll talk about what happens to you shortly. But first of all, yeah. I, what I want to know first, before we go into that detail, is how yeah. did you discover all this back history with the hotels, with the with the house drake, with Falcon Cliff, with Castle Mona? How did you discover all that information? The way I've discovered that was I got involved with an organization called Prisoners Abroad, and they help British citizens who are in prisons all around the world. I was their longest client, 17 years. About four years into being a client, I'd had one of their staff members constantly saying, look, would you like us to get a pen pal for you? And I said, no, 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 because I don't want to be doing my time with me. I don't want. And finally, the person was kind of rather blunt and basically said, look, stupid. You're coming back to a country you have no memory of. It might be helpful if somebody gives you some heads up. I said, okay. So then they introduced me to this lady. She had worked for the British government, the benefits department, and had been a fraud investigator. So when we first started writing, she said, tell me anything you want, but don't ever lie to me. And I told her, I won't lie to you. But I said, probably you won't like me after I start telling you about me, right? So then as I told her things, things didn't quite feel right to her. And so she started doing digging and stuff. And so she was the first one to actually realize that the woman I was calling my mom wasn't my mom because, you know, she was able to dig up my parents' marriage certificate and see the ages difference. My mom was born in like 22, you know, and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And I mean, it was so there was these big changes and stuff. And, but she didn't want to tell me because I, I was very adamant that this was my mom and I had her on a pedestal. And then, of course, as they were digging up stuff, there was only, from, from 1911 to about 1971, there was only one Kane family on the aisle with the K spelling. 
So all of a sudden you're finding all these articles about Leo and Kane and Ellen Kane and, you know, <laughs> and Eva Kane and all. You were able to verify that it was, in fact, your family. Yeah, we were able to verify that it was my family. They had contacted my aunt, the Immigration Customs Enforcement people, because in a letter that the man who, who purchased me, and when he died, he actually had sent a 14-page affidavit with 70 documents. And in the affidavit, he said he told a lot of the information that basically fed out that he, he learned through Martha. They actually went over and spoke to uh, my Aunt Eva. And my Aunt Eva said, yeah, well, he is my brother's son, but we sent him away and we really don't want any contact. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the documents that he had also submitted was a response letter that to what one he wrote. We never do. I don't have a copy of his, but the other letter is from my grandmother. And it says, yes, the child you have is, and this this is important. So it's 1971 and said the the child you have is the son of my my son, Douglas. But unfortunately, my son, Douglas, is ill and unable to care for children and said, but he was sent away for the betterment of the family and with the blessing of the church. And we really don't want to, you know, bring this back up. Don't contact us again type thing. Mm -hmm. So September of 71, uh, there's a full page ad in in one of the Manx newspapers celebrating my grandparents 60th wedding anniversary their congratulations from the queen and all that stuff in there they make a statement they say their son douglas was unable to appear at their uh, wedding anniversary because yep. he's ill but then they go on and they say but our granddaughter my older sister who i'm not going to name because i don't want to mm-hmm. I, I promise not to yep, do that's fine. Make, make them, uh-huh. that she was a confectioner and she made the cake and their only grandson now, now, wait a minute. They only had one granddaughter, and they didn't make the claim of the only granddaughter. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, from May to September, suddenly they make this very strong claim. Our only grandson has just graduated with his O grades or whatever, something like that. Yeah, That right there caused a lot of people to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are they being so definitive that they only have one grandson? Mm. It's because they're only claiming one, mm-hmm. right? Because I'd been sent away and basically they thought I was not going to be. But because they'd had a letter a few months earlier, they were now nervous that things might come out. So they were only publicly claiming one. I got you. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I've been really conscious about the fact that any family I do have on the aisle, which is only a few members, I actually went on Facebook and saw where they where they like to be and stuff. And I've been over the aisle now four times. I'll be back. But I made a conscious effort. A conscious effort not to go to those places uh-huh. just to make not make them more uncomfortable because the okay. whole thing with me is I hold nothing against them. They had nothing to do with what happened to me. The fact that they didn't know anything about me and basically I've been a stranger all their lives from what I basically have been informed is that they don't have room in their lives for a stranger. Uh-huh. And so it was, it was hard for me to hear that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I'm not out to, yeah. you know, like say, uh-huh. make things but, but at the right same time i argued because i wanted my birth registered because my birth didn't get registered in 54 because like i said my mom's mental state wasn't right yeah my dad had left and uh-huh. my grandmother apparently didn't know i fought hard and, and like i said this february on my 68th birthday it got registered and there was a full page article in the manx independent about it mm-hmm. you know basically i i accomplished because all my life when people said what are you i tell my manx and of course, half the people in the world, or at least three quarters of people yeah. in America, mm-hmm. have no idea what that is. 
but it was very it was very important because that was the identity that I had from being a little child that this is where I'm from and this is what I am. One of the things that I tried doing was because other people may never have met somebody from there, I tried to carry myself in a in a way that I'm representing the whole nation. So I have to be stronger, I have to be more honest, I have mm. to be and I tried doing this to to the best of my thing. So if he, if no, if they never met another person from the Isle of Man, the good impression I left him would hopefully be a good one. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dave Moore, and my guest is Jamie Morgan Kane, a Manxman who left the island as a baby and then spent the majority of his life in North America, eventually finding out who he really was. However, it's fair to say his life went off the rails in the most incredible of circumstances. Uh, yeah, I did. You know, there there were like say a number of things that that happened. It did go greatly off the rails. Definitely not the life I thought I would have. You ended up in prison. Yes, I did. And also some and, uh, pretty tough prisons as well. I mean, San Quentin, Folsom. I mean, these are names that we know here. They're world right. renowned. You know? Yeah. How come did you end up in these prisons? Well, basically, the thing was in 1978, I had gotten divorced from my first wife. Uh, initially, she had just abandoned my son with my oldest boy, the man that had basically taken me and quote, adopted me though, not legally. He came to me and said, look, I would like to raise your son. I've got the financial means and I've got political things and I'd like to raise him in a way that you didn't let me raise you and I'll get him into law school and all these things like that. And basically I told him, look, check it out. I didn't like the way you, how you treated me. I'm certainly not going to give you my son. And he got really angry and he, and in his anger, he threw a pack, an envelope at me. And in that envelope, there was the passport that had been my birth mother's, but Martha's picture was in it, and my baptism certificate. It was the first time I had tangible evidence that I was from the Isle of Man. Up till then, it was just stories told to me. So I went through a divorce. He he helped finance my, my ex-wife, and she ended up getting my son from me. I went through some really ups and down times. I was trying to build a, a bike shop. I was just out of the military, and I got with the the lady that would become my second wife. What little did I know is that he had gone to her and a few other people had offered them money if they would basically keep tabs on me and tell him what any things I had going on. Well, I made the mistake of of telling her one time, you know what, I'm going to get a passport and I'm going to go over to the Isle of Man and England and try to see if I have any family. When that got told to him, suddenly he realized that if I get a passport, questions get asked, where did I come from? And then what happened to the other boy because he had a totally different name, and that questions might be asked that he didn't want to have to answer. So using his different contacts, he at that time, he was working as a professor at the University of California, Fresno, but he had been a part of the OSS, and he is, one of his best friends was a guy named Richard Nixon, and uh, we used to have G. Gordon Liddy come to the house all the time, who was one of the Watergate plumbers. So there, he had a lot of real influential people around. Him. So my, my wife suddenly gets arrested for murder one special circumstances for the death of a man who he had named in his affidavit as being the man who took the other child away that disappeared. Mm-hmm. That man was found dead on my living room floor. The thing was that she's charged with two counts of murder and one person died, but she got two counts of special circumstances with the murder for quote monetary gain and stuff. So she was facing the death penalty. I was initially arrested for accessory after the fact, basically lying to the cops, because in all honesty, what I did, which was wrong, was I came home and I found this dead man on my living room floor, and he was somebody who I'd had physical altercations with. 
and my wife wasn't there and my child wasn't there. At that moment, I all I knew is I had to get them away from my family. I didn't want my family being drawn in, not knowing they had any, there was any involvement anyway. So I moved him from my house when, and his body was found a few hours later and stuff. But they had initially rested. So they, when they asked me about it, I just basically told them I didn't know what they're talking about. So mm. anyway, the charges I would have had at the time facing me would never have gotten me more than six months because, you know, I hadn't actually done the crime. But what they did is they pulled me in. They had the first trial of my wife and they had a hung jury by one man who couldn't bring himself to uh, find a woman guilty who was going to be put to death. Though he admitted if they were only going to give her life without the possibility. He, he didn't probably promise her dying in prison. He just didn't want to uh -huh. be the person that was signing over on it. So they pulled me in and said, look, next time we will have a full jury that will do it. We will be better at it. And the guy says, oh, you got 15 minutes and here's the deal. He says, if you're willing to accept responsibility of the household, which is one of the charges available in California at the time, if your child's doing drugs or whatever you can take time off him stuff that we will drop the charge into your wife and give your son back to her and stuff so they were offering me 13 years and said look you'll be out in time for your son and then they said oh you got 10 minutes to make this decision and then they said who do you think could do time better in prison you who's ex-military and i rode motorcycles and had a bike shop or your wife who's just a stay-at-home mom and part-time worker at, a, mm -hmm. at a mini mart uh oh you got five minutes so are you telling me you're not man enough to step up for your wife so how are you going to explain to your son you were willing to let his mom die because you weren't tough enough or not strong enough and not that seems incredible you know, that seems crazy yeah, these and, kind of you know these things happening yeah and then they came down to where they basically said we got you got 90 seconds i walk out of this room once i walk out of this room you know it's done we're not you know you're not going to get another chance and my attorney and my wife's attorney were there and they said you're not going to get a better deal so initially i took the deal that was supposed to give me 13 years and mm. they would never oppose my parole. I would still have to go to a parole board, but it, they uh -huh. wouldn't oppose it. And that was 13 years if I stayed out of trouble and got good time and work time. Five years into my sentence, the California legislature took away all the good time and work time from us. So suddenly my, my time went from 13 years, it jumped up to where it was going to be uh, 27 years. Then they gave the governor the right to take your date. These were what they call ex post facto laws, which mean you the laws in both the Constitution of the United States and California says you cannot make a law today that will negatively affect people and run it retroactive. Hmm. You can make it today and it goes for everybody. Then. But the high court in California and the federal court refused to review it. But the high court in California said, yeah, it's not really going to make you do more time. But in essence, it does. Suddenly, all these guys were having their sentences doubled and tripled and stuff. Then we went through 18 years where there was a no parole policy. If your charges were robbery, murder, manslaughter, stuff, because mm. you had Governor Davis and you had Governor Wilson, they said, we're not going to do it. No court would be willing to give us a play on it. And it wasn't until really until Schwarzenegger came in and he just started changing up. He upset a lot of people, correctional mm. officers, union and stuff. And so he didn't make a second term. They Basically, his career was over as a politician. So the next thing is we get Jerry Brown back in. He'd been the governor who'd been in in the 70s, and That's he'd right. actually written the, in, he'd written the Inmate Bill of Rights and gave us a lot of rights like family visits and TVs and, and uh, rehabilitation stuff. So he comes back in. Everybody thought, oh, we're going to be all good. I finally get found suitable in 2013 for parole, and I get all the way to two days before the 150 days that they have to 
to deny it. It's been on the governor's desk for the last 30 days. And two days before I was supposed to go, he says no. So I, I filed on, well, well, for what reason? Because the way the law had been written is they could take it, but they have to give you a, a, a reason for it. When I got the letter back from the governor's office, it said, because I can. And I went, that's not a legal reason. So I filed with the court, the appellate court, federal appellate court came back and said, well, you know, he does have that right. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not, I hadn't done anything wrong. I'd been doing all the programming. I had mm. vocations. I had work. I had chronos from staff. All these things saying I was ready to go. That was a big blow because this is the guy everybody was expecting to basically, if we met the other things and got to date, we would get out. I then had to wait four more years. And all that four years did was I got more good time, more good credits, more work time, mm. more good chronos and all this stuff. The funny kind of part was that the people I had over here in, in London at the time, uh, they got uh, MP to write a letter for me, a lo their, their local MP. Mm. He writes the letter. Now, you got to remember, California is used to the Hispanics. Yep. In the Hispanics language, a lot of words are reversed. Like Casablanca means house white. Mm -hmm. So when they get the ministerial primera type thing, MP, they're thinking it's prime, prime minister. minister. Okay. And that shows you how, how ignorant they were. They didn't know, even know who the prime minister was at that time. Mm. You know, they knew the queen, but other than But they're thinking that the and prime minister they, is writing to them to, to get you out of jail. Right. But, but it, uh, suddenly there's a letter. It says, you know, Parliament, House of Commons, la, la, la. God came on the Royal Mail with the queen's stamp on it and all, all that stuff. So And the letter got sent to the governor's office initially. And the next thing I know, I get called down to my counselor's office. I got these great big guards around me and I got a lieutenant and a captain. They're going, why are you having the prime minister of England write to the governor? And I said, I'm not having anybody write to the governor. And they said, and they show me the letter. Well, I, I already knew that the people were going to have their MP write. Hmm. And I'm looking at this letter and I'm thinking, these people have no idea who this is. They're thinking this is the prime minister. So I just kind of like went played stupid and said, well, yeah, you know, I, the people over there, they want me home. They think I've, I've been gone too long, especially since I should never have been in your country to begin with. And I'd had an immigration and custom enforcement detention since 2009, mm -hmm. where they had told me, you will be deported. You are not from this country. You illegally came in our country. You will be deported. What ended up happening, as I'm sure you're well aware of 9-11, mm -hmm. they came out with a thing called the Patriot Act. And one of the things the Patriot Act is if you if you served in the armed forces under the false identity of a U.S. citizen, hmm. you're automatically listed as a criminal alien, undesirable, mm -hmm. and you're banned from the U.S. forever. Well, because I was living, I, I was served under the name of the other child that I was given as being mm -hmm. adopted. They stripped me of my service record because they said I didn't have a right to it because I wasn't that person. So they stripped that from me. They took my military pension from me. They took military benefits from me. They took my social security that I had earned before I went into prison and all stuff. When they shipped me back, I, can't, I hit Heathrow with five quid in my pocket. That's mm. all they gave me. And I had over 2000 on my books that I had earned and saved in prison. Yeah. But when I got sent to immigration, I was in immigration for two months uh, waiting to come. They took that money saying that that was to pay for my care there, mm. my housing and care. So about two weeks later, I was on a plane to Heathrow. So when was this? Yeah. <laughs> when, what, what, when was this? When did you when did you get to the uh, UK? I, left, I got to the UK on the uh, the thirteenth of February two thousand eighteen. Wow! 
So how many years in prison was that? Uh, 34 and a half years. For something you were expecting to do 13. Yeah. And also, as I mentioned earlier, you went to, I mean, how come you're in San Quentin and Folsom? I mean, we know that from Johnny Cash. Uh, the way they do you in prison is they, they look at a number of factors. First, they look at what the crimes and were involved. And my crime was involved with basically covering up and hiding the, the fact that a person was killed. Okay. So that, that you know, okay, a murder type charge, even though I didn't, they knew I didn't do the murder. That's why I didn't. The interesting thing is on my deportation papers, they don't even have listed any crime on there other than mm. immigration. They don't okay. say, you know, he did 34 years of prison for murder. That's mm. not even there because even the Fed said there's too much stink to your case. Yeah. We don't want to, in case you ever get something pulled to where it comes up, we're not going to help be held responsible for it. So they only deported me behind my immigration. Issues. I, first off, I was 30 years old. I'm ex-military. I've got this case that involved the, the loss of life of another person. You know, and at the time I was riding with a motorcycle club and had bike shop. And so it put me in this unknown case. And so they said, well, we're going to have to go to a maximum security prison. So initially I was supposed to go to San Quentin initially, but they, they were close to intake because they'd had a big riot. So I get sent to Folsom and I do like nine months at Folsom. One of the problems I had was I want to get out in 13 years. So I'm not going to do anything that's going to jeopardize that uh -huh. by getting in trouble, using work stuff. So when I get there, of course, in the county jail I was in, it's not segregated. I, I was living in a six-man cell in high power with guys who'd been in prison. So you get to prison, though, and suddenly everything is based along racial lines. And so they listed you as either white, black, Hispanic, or other. And so when they came to me, they said, well, what are you? And I said, well, I'm Manx. <laughs> and I have that on my back. It says Manx bread on my back arms. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy goes, Manx. And I said, yeah. And he goes, is that like white? And I said, well, what do you call them white? And he points to these guys with lightning bolts and swastikas, uh, you know, white power and stuff, all that mm -hmm. stuff. And I said, well, if that's what you call white, I'm other than that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so <laughs> they put me down as other because I explained to them, I'm from an island. You know, I'm an mm -hmm. islander, you know. But the thing was, others covered the Pacific Islanders and Asians and Native Americans. That's what okay. predominantly the others covered. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things is that I, I get in there. So I'm confusing people because I look the way I look, yet I'm listed as other. I'm down as Manx. And like I said, people don't know what Manx is. Mm. And whenever I'd say from the Isle of Man, then people's stupid comment would be, oh, is there an Isle of Women too? Mm. And I would tell them, it's quite seriously, yes, Tirnanban, which is what <laughs> okay. the Isle of Sky was known in ancient yeah, times as. And they're okay. going, oh, uh, oh, uh, you yeah. know, so, you know, I, I would get them confused. And and, and uh, I ended up having to uh, have some run-ins with the Aryan Brotherhood guys because they couldn't understand why I didn't okay. want to be a part of their clique. And I told them, look, you guys aren't going to try to help me get out of prison. And my attitude is if you're not trying to help me get out, you're trying to help me stay in. And so I actually had to go and get into the boxing ring on the yard and a couple of times and uh, stand my ground. Hmm. But again, I was an unknown factor because the, I had tattoos and stuff and everybody just assumed I'd done prison or jail time. And I had, but all my tattoos, none of them were prison tattoos. You know, I've got the Isle of Man, three legs under one arm. You know, I've hmm. got a Celtic four on another, you know, I, I you know, so uh -huh. none of my, none of my tattoos, matched up to quote prison tattoo but 
the fact was because I'd been in the military, I had been with the special operation Marines. I had a little bit of training that other people on okay. the average uh, guy, drug guy on the street didn't have. Yeah. So I could do things that they didn't expect. And then all of a sudden, oh, he knows that secret stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but what ended up happening within five years, I didn't, wasn't having to fight all the time. People just went on the idea that just leave me alone because I don't play though. I don't want to be a part of your prison gang. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of, I just want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. But also because I built this reputation up, I was able to step into you and help youngsters who they were trying to recruit and say, no, no, he, he's over here with me yeah, yeah. and stuff. And I would tell the kids, get educate yourself. I tell them prison gangs don't want educated mm-hmm. people because the leaders aren't that educated. They don't want somebody smarter than them. So I would get, I would help guys get, you know, keep from getting caught up in this stuff by giving them good advice, basically. You did meet up with some renowned characters as well. I mean, I, you've written a couple of books about your experience. And uh, yes. in the latest one, which, again, is incredible because it's a story I, I kind of know, and that's about the Charles Manson family. Now, you didn't meet Charles yeah. Manson, but you met some of the family behind bars. No, I did meet Charles Oh, Manson. did you? Right, in okay. My first, yeah, my first book, I talk about that. Yeah, I was at Vacaville. That was, my, that was the reception center, and he was there. And at that time, he worked in the garden in the Catholic chapel. And uh, I was there a couple of days, and I got walked into the chapel by this one guy I knew from the county jail. And he said, yeah, that, that's Charlie Manson over there. And I looked at him, and it was really funny because when all the Manson stuff happened, I was still in my, my late teens. And it, it wasn't news wasn't something I was interested in. Mm. I was interested in motorcycle cars and girls. So I just remember how big of a story it was. But for some reason, I kept thinking he was a much bigger man. He's only like five foot two and a half, five mm. foot three. So he's a really short little guy. I'm going, oh, really? Well, I got a job working in the hospital. I would work as a surgical tech because of my medical corps training in the military. And then I, when I wasn't having to be needed for surgery, I would be down on the ward. and I would change dressings for bed sores and give special meals and all the things that you have to do in regular care of people that are in, in hospital. And he would come in and what he'd do is he'd hit up guys who worked in there and try to get drugs and, uh-huh. and needles and things like that. And of course, when he first came up to me and he, st- he starts talking to me because like, we're going to be a pair of old convicts together. Hmm. And, and I told him, you like, look, Charlie, I got nothing for you. Just go away. And he's like, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? You know, I'm Char, I'm Charlie F. You know, <laughs> hmm. you know, Manson, I'm better known than Jesus Christ. You know, and I'm like, yeah, okay. He and I had these, these, few little run-ins like that so he would go in with and get other guys to to do stuff for him and uh stuff but the other guy i met i met him like the day after my first day in prison i got in at nighttime my first day was an orientation day and the first guy i met was edmund kemper and uh he was part of the orientation thing there were some guys his size i'd known on the streets of bikers in the room i was in where the average guy was like five foot ten he was much bigger than five foot ten. So, t- for those who don't know who he is, oh, Edmund Kemper. Uh, yeah, he uh, is. It has been said, though I, I I can't verify that he was part used as part of the identity for the Wild Bill character in the Silence of the Lambs or or the Red Dragon. He had killed his grandparents when he was a teenager. Went to uh, a psychiatric hospital. The psychiatrist decided that he was ready to go home. He told them, "I am not." And they told him, oh, you're just having, uh, you know, pre-pubescent uh, anxieties and stuff. Mm. They let him out. 
and he ended up killing a number of other girls and then he eventually ended up killing his own mom and stuff yeah he was one of the serial killers and mm. uh but funny enough he was the one that was really big involved in getting the hospice care facility at Vacaville started for inmates when AIDS came through and then he also used to read books on on tape for the blind which I used to find kind of a thought kind of a spooky thought mm. if you're a blind person and you've got Edward Kemper talking in your ear to you you know, yeah. you know what's that going to be like I was going to say you also met other members of the of Charles Manson's family which you go on in detail in your latest book yeah when I got down to uh, California Men's Colony I met uh, Charles Tex Watson and I met Bobby Boussoulet and I met uh, Bruce Davis Bobby Boussoulet had well accepted he wanted to be a part of the prison cultural thing like that mm. Tex Watson was actually at that time the inmate minister at, in the Protestant chapel and uh, had his own little cult of uh, people, churchy people going on. And then Bruce Davis, quite honestly, out of all of them, Bruce Davis is the only one I ever met. And I spoke to him a long, long time, uh, a number of occasions that I honestly believe had rehabilitated and would actually be the only safe one to ever let out mm -hmm. because I mean, he, he spent a lot of time doing things to help other people. And he really, really, uh, I was in a couple of therapy groups with him and he really had a deep remorse for, you know, not just what the crimes that he was in. And he wasn't in for the, the, the Sharon Tate and LaBanca murders. He was in uh, involved with killing Shorty O'Shea, who was the caretaker at the Spawn Ranch they mm -hmm. were at. And so, so, but it's just the fact he was a member of the yeah. family that actually got him in more, more trouble and kept him in prison longer for that. Mm -hmm. Then actually the the thing, you know, he had the regrets of getting into drugs. He had regrets of, of letting his family down. I mean, there was a lot of things, yeah. but I honestly believe he was the only one that was really a salvageable person mm -hmm. out of it. And uh, then the child chill, the kidnappers, they were all there at CMC with me. They were the ones that stole the, the school bus of like 29 children. How have you kept your sanity? That's what I can't. <laughs> How have you managed really, that? The, yeah, this is going to really sound, sound probably... Uh, I don't know, Cornish or whatever. But like I said, when Martha used to tell me about remember, 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 she, one of the things that she told me is to re that I was to remember I was a man of the isle, a son of the sea, and the brother of the storm. And she told me throughout my life, I would run into many terrible situations to where it was like I was just being beaten by, you know, the elements type thing. But because I was the brother of the storm, I would be able to weather these things as long as I remembered that I was Manx mm -hmm. and said, and remember, she said, your three legs, wherever you are thrown, you will stand. I took that to great heart that, that that's why we have the three legs, because no matter what knocks us back, we're always going to have a leg to stand on. Uh -huh. And so so for me, it was that. And then the other little bit was, quite honestly, and not trying to be crude, but I couldn't let them win. They said something to me and they lied to me. And I just, I wasn't going to become a statistic. Okay. And so I honestly believed from day one, I would be getting out. Quite honestly, I didn't expect it to be as long as it was. Mm -hmm. And I came out with the same, and one thing you'll, they'll, you'll, you'll understand, you might understand about prison. If you go into prison and you do a long time, whatever age you are in mentally or well, physically as well, but whatever age you go in mentally, that's where you tend to stagnate at. Mm -hmm. So there were guys who went in at 15, 16 years old that I knew getting out at 60. And they were all thinking about going over to hanging out at the high schools to, to try to get girlfriends and stuff because 
Yeah. They hadn't matured, mm -hmm. but I was 30 years old. So I'd already gone through military. I'd already been like, say in the real world, I had a business. I had been through, you know, two marriages. So I had a lot more worldly thing, but I was still 30 years old. And so when I got out, that was one of the things I came back over here and I'm thinking, you know, I'm a bike mechanic. I'm, you know, I, I know all this stuff. I have all mm. the certifications and I got over here and first thing they did was they sent me down to a job center and uh, gave me ESA and told me you're, you're going to be retired in nine months. And uh, no, we don't want you going out looking for jobs. Just sit back and relax. Nine months later, they turned around, gave me pension credit, told me, go on and be retired. You know, okay. you're an old man. Uh -huh. And it was really hard for me to accept being told I'm an old man. Mm. And then, of course, none of, my, none of my certifications from America were of any value over here because they're done differently. And I also suddenly was too old to take certifications for things. So I did a lot of volunteer work uh, with uh, Millennial Greens doing maintenance work and stuff and i worked at a couple of wildlife mm -hmm. rescue centers uh building things for them and i got i have a great love for hedgehogs you know okay <laughs> so uh yeah so i mean you know so i've done things along that line i've built planners for people i've put okay. down decking yeah so that's basically the thing All right. but okay you know, we're running I, i'm running out of time so um i'm sure you are yeah <laughs> but um so that first trip to the isle of man since being yeah. six months old, what was that like? Yeah, yeah. I actually did a video. We we did we we filmed a video of us coming in. The very moment on the plane we flew in, where I saw the isle emerging from under the clouds and out of the sea, I was I was really teary eyed. I was very much. And when I when I got off the plane, the person with me who was doing the filming got off first, so I could get, he could get my when I came off. When I stood out the front out of the door of the plane, it was a cold breeze blowing across. And I sucked you know, the air in, and all of a sudden it wasn't cold. My whole chest heated up like it was almost like a warm welcome. Mm -hmm. The thing was that there's a sign in the airport about you know let your like ex your your uh, adventure begin or experience begin. And I said you know this is exactly it. And then it was like I got taken around to places that my family were involved in, and there was a thing about it felt like I knew these places. Yeah. It, I, I had this kind of, you know, weird Connection. sensation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a place at the Falcon Cliff where there's these stone pillars outside. And there's a place where one stone is kind of flat and it's just at where your palm level is. And I put my hand there and I just wondered, did my granddad ever put his hand there? Did my dad uh -huh. ever put his hand there? You know, and it was just one of these things. So it was really emotional I've then. Been, oh, very, very emotional. If you watch the video, you'll, you'll mm -hmm. see him in. We, we got a little bit of Bobby Boulay's uh, coming home playing okay. along with it. So it mm -hmm. kind of like, but uh, yeah, it's one of my YouTube videos that I've done. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, I mean, we went up to the top of Snaefell and what was really funny was it was really cloudy. And if we got to the top and the sun came out and we, and, and you could see the seven kingdoms, you know, and, yeah. and that was one of the things that Martha had told me about that there's seven kingdoms from the top that you can see on, on clear days. And, and it's just, but and I've been back, like say that four times, and uh -huh. each time I've tried to see more and more. Each time I feel more connected. I, I, I you know, and, and like I said, and I used to always tell people, it's my island. You and know, you're coming and, back and, again. And you're coming back again. I'm coming back. Yeah, the first week of June, um, coming back for four days to see a bit of the TT because I, I, like I said, other than when I when I left in '54, and I would have heard the bikes going past hmm. the Hillberry Corner. This will be the first time I've actually been able to experience it because I did watch. 
every chance I could, I'd watch it on telly uh-huh. uh, in the U.S. because it was on ESPN2. This will be my first time to actually be there. Brilliant. And I've got some really good friends I've made on the aisle, and they're making sure that my experience is going to be uh, really good. We're going to go see uh, the Rag and Bone Man the first night we're okay, there. Okay, yeah. We got tickets mm-hmm. to that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, right up there where you guys, uh, where the station is, that's right there <laughs> is where the uh, the Boswell Gypsies used to camp right out mm. there, you know, and, uh, you know, and that's why I say Martha was actually one of them. And that was that whole little thing about putting this, the, the sand and the water and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the mist into my mouth was, was all part of the, her little gypsy charm. thing about a little to make charm. sure that yeah. the aisle would pull me back. Um, and, and like I said, all I've ever dreamed about and, and everybody kept telling me one, you'll never get back there. Two, if you do, you'll never get your birth registered. Well, it did take a few years to get it, but you know, I got it. Brilliant. And you know, and and the thing was, it was meant to be because that's where I'm from. We've, <laughs> we've chatted. We've chatted. Final question. We've chatted quite a while, but yeah. all these experiences are in two books that you've written. One that's been out a while, and one that's due out now. Yeah, the first book, uh, you know, uh, thirty-four years in hell came out in two thousand nineteen. And has sold over sixty thousand copies, and is an audiobook and ebook. And then the Behind the Granite Walls, which is kind of a follow-up based on questions that people who read the first book asked me about. So it just came out on the twenty eighth of April, and it's also in uh, like ebook and and, mm. and paperback right now. The Isle of Man, like I said, if I if 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 it ever comes possible for me to move back there, you know, I, I would I would love to. But if not, I'm going to be coming back a couple times a year just because I need to, because it, it, I just feel so good when I'm there. My guest today was Jamie Morgan Kane, A Life Lived Extraordinarily. Both of his books, 34 Years of Hell and Behind the Granite Walls, are still available. I'm Dave Moore, and you've been listening to Perspective.